0: Hello, I'm David Clark, CFA, and welcome to the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professionals. And those of you who have listened to my podcast before will know that, behind the Irish accent, this podcast comes straight from Edinburgh. And today, it's my great pleasure to interview Sandy Nairn, CFA, or more formally, Dr. Alistair Nairn. Sandy is one of the titans not only of the Edinburgh investment management community, but also the global investment management scene. He started his investment career in Glasgow at Murray Johnson before moving to Templeton Investment Management in the US, where he reached the dizzy heights of director of global research. He was enticed back to Scotland in the early noughties to set up the Scottish Widows Investment Partnership before branching out on his own to found Edinburgh Partners. And in a beautiful act of circularity, his business was bought by Franklin Templeton in 2018, where he now works as chairman of the Templeton Global Equity Group. He's also an accomplished writer and commentator on investments and economics, and has just published a book with the ominous title of The End of Everything Bubble, which we're going to speak about today. Welcome, Sam.
1: Thank you, David.
0: I hope all is well with you. You you are in Edinburgh as well today. Or are you speaking to me from somewhere else in the world? No,
1: no, I'm 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 working from home, but um, cringing with embarrassment at your introduction. Oh, oh, well, well, uh, apologies for that. <laughs> Ap- apologies. I could have made it even more um, <laughs> but there
0: you there you go, there you go. Um, uh, look uh, about the book, I committed, I mean, it's it is very readable uh, and I uh, and very accessible. I understood most of it. Um, but it's also sobering reading and I, I i think the title gives a fair indication of where the narrative of the book is going but but i I suppose just to get started, one thing that I, I loved about it was that was you know the thing that you where you say that the interest rates have been the lowest they've been for five thousand years, obviously citing citing other sources for that but uh, i mean it is all your work is always history driven is that is that fair to say that you' you know you look to the
1: past for guide to the future uh, well it's not entirely history driven but you ignore history at your peril i mean I think I can't remember. It's Santanyanas. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I mean, there's always lessons you can learn. So you can never, you never have a direct parallel. You, I don't think you can ever say, this happened in history, therefore it will happen again. But um, you can look at, you can look at the set of circumstances, and out of those, you can get an idea of the sorts of things that may happen, uh, and in particular the sorts of human behaviours that both cause them and then reverse them.
0: And I suppose with with that in mind, uh, I I think you—you—you, one of the points that you make is that that people and and the markets and policymakers, there's this exuberance taking place, unfolding before our eyes. And and you mentioned a kind of complacency, I think, amongst policymakers, but also amongst you know your colleagues across the investment management industry. Do do you feel like a bit of a Cassandra? Do you think on, on, on this?
1: Yes, and, and and possibly I've misused the word complacency as well. Um, I, I suspect many of the people operating in markets and policy are probably not complacent. They're just bound by the framework within which they're operating. Um, you know, and, and so for if you're a policymaker in a central bank, even if your only objective is to deal with inflation, you're still worried about a whole range of other things and the blame that comes with making certain types of decisions. Even if addressing your principal target should promote a particular action, you're loath to take it because you can see the negative side effects and um, and independence has been you know compromised for those reasons and then in the industry you know you you're i mean you know well and everybody who's you know listens to this who's in the industry knows well that um, what the clients expect the way the structure the absolute and relative performance can make um certain actions very difficult given the timing of the consequences of policy and everything else is is unknown and extends longer than you can expect so I, I suppose it's slightly pejorative to call it complacent because it it implies a frame of mind that's probably not true but but it it i I'm not even sure why i used it but it it what it what it does is you have people um taking actions that against um, the backdrop of history don't look logical, but they're logical within the framework within which they operate. I think that it's the, the coexistence of those two things that, that create repeatedly creates what happens, but just nothing on the scale before. It's interesting that, but
0: isn't that almost more scary in a way? It kind of reminds me of that thing that people said before the First World War, that everybody knew that, that something was going to go wrong. It's just no one knew how to stop it and i suppose you know when you even talk about you know maximum optimism versus maximum pessimism yeah. just pessimism just in in relation to what you just said there that, that's not true is it because actually there's a lot of people that are quite worried at the moment but it's just you know what what can we do
1: so i think um i'm not sure if this was a formative experience for me but it was it certainly was something that stuck with me uh, when I started, um, I worked in Japanese equities, and I was, many ways, fortunate enough to move from Japanese equities to UK equities when the Nikkei was at 37,000. It's now 27,000, um, and that's over 35 years ago, or 30, 30 plus years ago. Um, was there anybody in the world did not think Japanese were ex- equities were expensive? You know, as they as they ran up, um, but the decision making. Um, that kind of revolved around it was, um, I'm trying to remember, I think Japanese equities might have been over 40% of the world index. and I'm not sure, but it's a very high number. And people would put 25% in and then say they were 17% underweight. But you're putting a quarter of your money into a market you felt was extremely expensive. But all the kind of risk parameters as the industry defined them made doing more than that potentially very dangerous. And you had to have a real kind of not just strength of a conviction, but a, a, an institutional structure that allowed you to make those decisions. And I, I was lucky at the time, um, in the early 90s, when I worked somewhere that, you know, had John Templeton leading it and um, you were able to follow through, I think, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that we had any greater insight than people in other, in other firms. I mean, the world, this, this industry is populated by really smart, hardworking people. So something must be causing it. And I think something does cause it throughout history. And it's the kind of, The framework within which you operate. If you weren't in that framework, you would look and say, "This is not a logical thing, logical thing to do." Um, But and the pressures have not got any easier.
0: Yeah. So, so are you aiming this mainly? Is it is it more aimed at policymakers? Because in some ways, it's a political book you're making and a political point you're making in some ways. That I mean, you talk about what happened after the financial crisis of two thousand eight, and the the emergency measures, emergency measures that were put in place then, just. Never stopped. Uh, yeah, is there is there a political point? Do you think to what you're trying to make?
1: I, I suppose you can infer it from that. I mean, as you know, they, I mean, the <laughs> I, I find, and I think many people do, but I certainly find writing a difficult and exhausting process because it's you're fighting with truth all the time. Because it, when you when you articulate an argument verbally or in a dialogue. Um, you can get away with it not being properly thought through. As soon as you commit it to paper, the holes start to appear. And and so most of the time when I write something, it's a test to see have I thought, properly understood it, properly thought thought it through. And inevitably, whatever I thought was going to be an easy process becomes difficult because you, you know, you have to go to primary sources, you have to check it, you're trying to be balanced and representative. So I, you know, in terms of what's this book for, I think the, the, the book, um, slightly ashamedly, was for me to make sure that I had thought through properly all the different elements. Um, and as you do that, you set them out. You know, so, so I kind of view the book a little bit like a pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid is the data. Um, and I've tried to be balanced and even-handed about the data to go in. So I haven't excluded anything that would compromise or contradict. Um, I, I've, I've I've tried to put everything in and then a level up in the pyramid is is kind of the, the tabular or graphic presentation of it, again, trying not to be misrepresentative. The level above that, as it gets narrow, is the kind of analysis of it. And then you get the conclusion. And the conclusions are the political bits. But but the further up the pyramid you go, the more it becomes opinion rather than fact, if you like. Um, and, and so at various stages, it's perfectly legitimate for somebody else to come in and say, yeah, I get all of that, but I don't agree with the conclusions. That's that, that's, that's fair enough. Um, but as I say, that the purpose of it was really for me to make sure I could, you know, g- given what the conclusions that would drive out of it were, I wanted to be sure I thought it all through properly. And and the the book about you know technology that I wrote in, um, although it, it kind of grew arms and legs, and then it, we did another edition just because it got slightly out of date, that I did in the in the late '90s was exactly the same reason. You know, I was, I was living in a place surrounded by. All the excesses. It was very easy just to, to um to, you know, to criticise what was happening, but you had to make sure you'd thought about it properly, and, and that was the exercise. So I, the book was written as a kind of bearing of the soul. This is this is, this is the background. This is the underpinning, and hence this is what I think. I mean, the most important, the most interesting bit is not actually in many ways in the book. The most interesting thing is, if this happens, what happens next? You know, if you had a catharsis of this magnitude in asset markets, you know a lot of the social contracts that exist around the world are going to be under threat. In many ways, if you accept the first bit, yes, you need to position your portfolio ready for it, but you also need to position for this new framework that's going to come because the world is going to change. Um, and so I, I kind of wrote the book, and then it was time to move on and think about the other stuff. Oh Well,
0: I well, look forward to the next book yeah, as well, yeah. I I'll presume it's, it's about finding yourself Hunkering down in, a, in an island in the Pacific and waiting out the next 100 years, but no, that, but that's actually in some ways it, it, it is very much though. So. It's a, it's a fact-driven book, and it, you know that the, the uh, I speak as someone who who studied logic at university. It is a very very cogent argument that you make. Getting to the asset point of it, um, I mean, it, you know, as I say, the title in some ways, you know, it <laughs> gives away the conclusion. Of, yeah. Where can I mean, you know, your point is generally. That the, the most asset classes, if not all asset classes, are are, are overvalued or uninvestable. Can you just talk us through some of that? I mean, the equities you say uh, could be. You know, by historical standards, is it is there, is there the forty-five percent overvalued? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: tell us a bit like that. Very, very. I mean, very rough numbers. Those are just working off historic metrics, which which I don't think is un, unreasonable, but it you know there's there's not a huge precision in that it's it's kind of orders of of magnitude um i I suppose um you know as i as i kind of um think about it that bit at the end about the valuations was just to say what what are we actually talking about here um and what we're talking about here is something we've never seen before so i was i was asked a question in an internal research meeting about you know the the time when i was fortunate enough to spend working with, with john templeton and they said well. You know, Sir John could always find a cheap area somewhere. Would he not find something now? And my answer to that was, well, you know, we've never had in history a period of interest rate suppression that's been so uh, elongated and so widespread. So it, it, and if you step back and think about it, if you put the cost of money to zero or negative for an ex, almost in excess of a decade, and perhaps even longer, depending where you're looking. Um, and when you go to the, you know, just as an example, and I'm not picking in the Bank of England because I think the policy was entirely appropriate when it started. But, it, but if you go back, if you go to the, you can go to the Bank of England website now and, and Google within that, you know, what, what's the purpose of QA? It explicitly says to push up asset prices. That's what it says. Um, and in particular, to encourage risk taking. Well, it's, it's, if you have it for that long, that's what you've done. And why would you think that some asset classes wouldn't go up when, when you do that? so so what's happened in in my mind is is absolutely entirely logical um, and anticipated and explicitly stated by policymakers the, the 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 problem is or not maybe it's not a problem i suspect had covid not hit um it would have ended then i think what we're seeing now would have been unfolding then but the the last leg up was caused by i guess the the Federal Reserve balance sheet went from $4 trillion to $8 trillion, having gone from $1 trillion to $2 trillion and $2 trillion to $4 trillion. So um, we just had that kind of final blow off. And again, with COVID, you could absolutely see um, legitimate reasons for policymakers to do it. The world economy ground to a halt, and, and so I'm, I'm not sort of throwing stones at anybody as much to say it, it doesn't really matter the motivations that got us here, we're here. The question is, what happens? What happens next? Uh, and the book was a little bit about, is there a way out of this that doesn't involve something unpleasant happening in asset prices? And I couldn't find productivity, plausible productivity or growth numbers that could generate sufficient growth and profits to make that happen. So the answer was no, which kind of gave the, um, the somewhat flowery title. Um, I had other titles in mind, but they um, the, the, they probably wouldn't have been appropriate. <laughs>
0: Well, look, look. I mean, in some ways, you know, you you do come to a a, a conclusion and you come to a, 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 a advice with a small A, I suppose, for the final bit. of it, talking about capital preservation, yeah, and and the tough choices and and you know, building up your liquidity and those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, what, what, uh, you know, it, it does sound uh, uh, you know quite a, a, quite a serious thing to do. But you know, tell us, I mean, you know, what 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 should investors be doing then?
1: Well, I guess, uh, sorry to do this, but it depends what kind of investor you actually are. If you're sitting in a segment of the marketplace as a professional investor where you have a relative investment objective, number one, I think you do have, if you think things are expensive, you do have to communicate that to the client. You know, They they may have a fully invested mandate, but I think you're duty bound to say, um, okay, I sit within this mandate, but I have to warn you, valuations to us look very high. Um, And then the responsibility lies with the, the the client to deal with that but you know if you're the if you're the client um you know you have to think about i mean you might you know so if, if you're a cfa working um on the client side you know institutional clients who've got certain liability structures they um they need to reach you need to consider whether those are actually reachable or not um and and the one route you probably should not go down is stretching all the investments up the risk curve to try and hit whatever the hurdle rate is that hurdle rate you know, it is possible at times hurdle rates are not achievable, and the attempt to achieve them is is counter counterproductive so you've got the client side you 've got the institutional manager um, you 've got the retail side and, and the retail side equally you know your starting point is absolutely identical to the institutional you have to communicate you know if you genuinely think everything's expensive, then I feel you're duty bound to tell the client that they may say well that's fine. You know, um, uh, the range only they only the client can judge the balance of their assets um you've only got a portion of them so they can make that decision but you 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 must tell them if it's if if that's the case um and then within that um within those boundaries and the constraints in the investment policy you manage to the best of your ability um and if you know in my, in, in my case there is a closed-end investment trust run we we Went to the shareholders to get the investment policy changed to allow us greater latitude to try and preserve the capital. Because within the policy we had, we I didn't feel it was possible because it it wasn't in my mind enough, or it is an everything bubble. Whereas when when the closed end vehicle was set up, we put in enough latitude to cover ourselves in difficult periods, but we never envisaged something like this happening.
0: Well, I mean, well, I suppose isn't that an encouraging thing because. In some ways, it brings us back very much to the profession as such, and, and you know, I, I, you know, the investment management community is 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 run by professionals who need to tell the people that are the clients the way it is. It's not about selling them stuff, and, and I think that's that's an important thing for for, for you.
1: Well, I, th- I th- it's where you start from. It's it's not it's not my money; it's their money, and and you you. Have- explicit and implicit contract that you, you should share your views with them um but you also need to you know you be slightly cautionary because um in the sense of you know how how strongly you put your views because you're just one person and it's and as i say that pyramid goes from facts to compilation tabular you know, compilation of data analysis of data and then the conclusions you draw from it and you know you you, you would be um it would be remiss to think that what you say is absolutely going to happen because history tells us you, we're, we're, all, we're all fallible. Um, but, but there are times when some things are just much clearer than others. So, you know, the Asian crisis was pretty clear. The um, TMT bubble was pretty clear. Financial, the global financial crisis, less so because a lot of it was hidden. Although the overvaluation piece, the, the, the potential fracturing of the financial system and the implosion wasn't as clear as everybody makes out afterwards, because it was deliberately hidden off balance sheets and financial institutions. Um, but this one seems to be pretty clear. So that's why, you know, there's the book and and why um, I'm pretty unequivocal, because I can't I can't see a way out. <laughs> I wish I could. I promise you, I'm, I'm an optimistic, but well, I, I think there'll be lots of interesting things come out of it. I, I, I'm not a perennial Cassandra, I don't think. Okay. Well, I mean, just
0: on the, the uh, you know on the clarity that you mentioned there, that this is so clear. You know, this was written and published what well, three months ago. Um, so 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 it, since then, and particularly in January, things have come back a bit. I mean, are you talk in the book. I think about whether this whether something suddenly is going to precipitate this, or I mean, do you think that maybe this is this is the this is the start?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I personally think it is, but. Um, you know, I, I suffer from all the behavioral characteristics of somebody who's always looking for the fissures to appear, but because I have a fairly strong view about it. So um and, and one of the things we know is that um you, you just can't predict the timing of, of movements, even if you can predict what what will happen eventually. Um so you know, I think it is, but I'm I'm not the right person to ask about that. But what what I do think is that um whilst recognizing one it would be lovely to get the exact timing right um, that shouldn't drive what you say or do because um, the incremental games, the kind of picking up pennies in front of the steamroller if if you accept this view is just not worth the risk um, what, what, what is important and interesting though is that um, you know how the path of this and the interpretation will evolve in the coming 12 and 24 months, you know, because, because so, so my kind of analogy, somebody asked me the other, the other day about it, was like the, because they were asking, you know, we were all sort of um, obsessed with catalysts or triggers, but my, my kind of um, this visual analogy is this um, sort of bandy-legged camel completely laden. And it doesn't really matter what lands on the top of the camel, that's not what's important, it's the fact You've got this huge amount of debt, and its knees are bowed, and it has to take a step forward. And so, I, I don't really care what the, um, you know, what the the feather that comes down and lands on it is. If 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 that's the right analogy, there are some obvious things that, if they happen, the market could not go over. You know, if if Russia invaded the Ukraine, it's hard for me to see the, and it's and it's not a, you know, it's not a zero probability. It may not be 50%, but it's. I think it's more than the market's discounting. I think. The inflationary issue, yes, a lot of it is um, bottlenecks. I mean, arithmetically, one can f- figure out inflation pretty easily for the next couple of years, but you know, I, I don't think it's 1% or 1.5%, maybe, you know, maybe it's 2 2.5%, two who, who knows? But historically, you'd expect at least a, a 1% real yield. So there's a doubling of bond yields for you right away. I don't think the equity market could stay in it, and obviously, arithmetically, the bond market gets pretty badly hit. You know that credit yield spreads are incredibly narrow. And that a lot of risks probably haven't been priced properly. So not only do you get an uplift in yields, you get the spreads um, widening. Um, I I I think we're seeing the fissures now, but yeah, you could just as easily see another ten or fifty cent back on markets before it happens. I I really don't really don't know. It depends what the central banks do, and it 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 depends on that the kind of intangible confidence levels. But I I think there's probably been enough frights for some investors who've been very heavily exposed to things that have been hit the most, because although the broad indices are not down much, there are pockets that the market are actually down quite a lot. Um, and, and so I could see people just you know, just gently saying, I think I'll just take a bit out of this and a bit out of that, and assets are priced at the margin. Um, so, so my guess, but it's only a guess, and I think anybody's... Guess is worth at least as much, if not more, as we probably sawtooth down a bit, wee bit of a rally, down a bit, wee bit of a rally.
0: Well, I suppose the good news is at least to mean like in these times there'll be demand for for books and commentary and podcasts. <laughs> so we should be uh, we should we, we should be okay on that. Uh, Sandy, thank you very much for your time there. Sure, and my pleasure. Gonna, the book is called The End of Everything Bubble, and it's out now. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you won't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. And for more information, go to cfauk.org forward slash podcast.